I would like to look at right action or appropriate action and to see how there is a connection with the meditation we did today about feeling tones that generally we act very much upon our feeling tones. And so I want to show the connection, in a way, between the two. And so first, I'd like to read two quotes from the Pali text about appropriate action. And what monks is appropriate action? Refraining from taking life, refraining from taking what is not given, refraining from sexual misconduct. This is called appropriate action. So, I mean, this is, in a way, the basic precepts, the basic ethics, do not kill, do not steal, do not perform uh, sexual misconduct. But what I found interesting is the next quote, which, in a way, extends a little uh, from the first one. And it really shows again that the Buddha doesn't see the precepts as ruled in a legalistic way, but very much in a situationist way. And so that's what he says. Here amongst a noble disciple gives up the destruction of life and abstains from it. By abstaining from the destruction of life, the noble disciple gives to numberless beings freedom from fear, freedom from hostility, and freedom from oppression. So what he's pointing out is by me not being aggressive, then actually I free others from my aggression. So they're not going to live in... Because you might aggress somebody and then that has also its repercussion. It's kind of like a wave. Then people will be afraid of you. So it's kind of like feeds itself and has repercussion more than the act itself nearly. But then he further says, and by giving to numberless beings freedom from fear, hostility and oppression, he himself will enjoy also a wide freedom from fear, hostility and oppression. And often you have this, I find in the Buddha's teaching, this reciprocity, that you do something for others but not only for others, because in a way it will also benefit yourself. So this appropriate action, in a way it, it, it works at different level of benefiting myself, other, and myself again. So to me to see this important point, in a way if I am not aggressive, I am not going to create a climate of fear. And then myself, I will not be fearful. This is kind of interesting link. And so in a way, looking 
And the three, the, the three that are mentioned in the first quote about appropriate action being not killing, not stealing, no sexual misconduct. But if we look, when there is killing, when there is violence, generally why do we want to kill somebody? Why are we violent, aggressive towards somebody? Generally because we experience an unpleasant feeling in contact with that person or what that person represents. I mean, a very simple example, a mosquito. You feel the, the bite and tack. You know, and it's kind of like immediate. You feel the, it's kind of like, and, the, and that's it. Or even if you have a kind of a fly, you have a fly, tack. it's kind of nearly immediate. And in a way, it's kind of like a training not to do that because that's a, it's painful. I get rid of it. And so in a way to see that the, before the action, in a way you have the feeling tone. And that often that's what we do, we react to the feeling tone. But what is also interesting with that one is in a way you could have a pleasant and unpleasant feeling tone together which would create that you would kill somebody. That's what I saw recently. I was just so... It was just weird. I, I was watching TV a little idly, and then suddenly there was this program on these men in France who kill their wife because of their passion. It's called a passionate killing, and seemingly kind of exonerate you a little because you do it in the passion. And what was weird is that these men love their wife, but they killed them. Because in a way they love too much, but at the same time they are beating them up out of their love, I presume. And then the wife wanted to leave and they did not want the wife to leave, so they killed them. And there was this man, this 60 years old man who was a former policeman, saying it was an accident. She fell upon the knife. And I miss her so much. And I thought, wait a minute. But you could see there was this pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling mixed together, making this explosive mix, and then the guy kind of, you know, killing her. And so, you know, to see generally action comes from this feeling tone. And then, in a way, the Buddha is not just saying, don't kill. As in the previous quote he said a few days ago, cultivate harmlessness. And so that's the other side of the precept. It's not that you just not do something, but there is also this encouragement to cultivate, develop appropriate action, harmless action. Then you have stealing or taking what is not given. But often see when you take something that is not given, something you, t you take, you steal, why do you do it? Because when you come in contact with that thing, mm, I want it. You don't want it because you don't like it. You want it because you like it. And you like it because contact feeling pleasant. So I want to keep this thing with me. Because if I acquire the thing, the pleasant feeling will be with me all the time. 
Unfortunately, it never lasts very long. You get it, and then the pleasant feeling effect kind of dissipates generally. But this is what happened. Uh, for me, it was in a way, my, I would say, possibly one of my first spiritual shift. When, when I was 18, 19, I was in England, and I was relatively poor, and I was also an anarchist, and I thought reasonably that I could liberate books. <laughs> that is to say, to steal them. But the books I used to steal were spiritual books. <laughs> I mean, like a contradiction in terms of action. Until one day I thought, after reading all these spiritual books I had stolen, I thought, maybe this is not a good idea. <laughs> and then I thought the solution to this problem is to stop contact. And so I stopped contact. I stopped going to spiritual bookshop. And in that way, I stopped stealing spiritual books. <laughs> and nowadays, I could not do it at all. But in a way to see, you know, why do we take something? Why do we take something? Why do we steal something? Because there is a contact, because there is a pleasant feeling. And then we want to acquire what gives us the pleasant feeling. And then the other side of that, that the Buddha tell, tell us to cultivate, is generosity. How can we be generous? How can we share with others? Then you have a sexual misconduct. And again, of course, for the monks and the nuns, there is a celibacy, but the lay people are not supposed to be celibate. That's why in the Sigalavaka Sutta, you get the sixth duty to the wife from the husband and vice versa. And so in a way, basically, it's again, he's saying, have sexual interaction, have sexual love, but if it does not cause harm to yourself or to others. And then there is a whole list of children, of married women, of kind of all kind of list of with whom it's not recommended. But again, to see if there are any temptation to spirit to sexual misconduct, what is behind it? Generally is an attraction to somebody. And there is this pleasant feeling of mm, attraction. <laughs> or inside you, you want to create a very pleasant feeling through an orgasm. And so you look for the likely person who will enable you to have it. <laughs> and so in a way to see again, there is this pleasant feeling. And I have to tell you something. I discovered something today. I did not know. I did not know that Arahant, tomorrow I'll talk about this, more about the awakening, the steps, everything, but just this my small information that an Arahant does not have sex because he or she, this is a completely enlightened being from the Theravada point of view, from the Palitex point of view doesn't have sex because he cannot be interested in it. So, if you have an 
somebody who pretend to be an arahant, and that person wants to have sex with you, they're not an arahant. <laughs> and so there, the other side is in a way to respect ourselves and others, to respect the boundary, to respect the integrity. And so to see the other not just for our own sake of our own pleasant feeling, but really to respect the integrity of the other. So in a way to see, to me this is in a way what we're doing in meditation. We're actually developing a choice. Instead of having contact, feeling, and immediate reaction, actually we see the point of contact, we see the feeling arising, and then through the meditation, through the meditative awareness, then we can make a choice. Do I go to habitual, sometimes painful pattern, or do I do something different? Do I have a creative engagement? Do I have a creative response with the contact, with the feeling? So I think it's very important to see the practice is not to stop contact, because often nowadays, in certain part of the Theravada school, there is this idea of cessation. And like literally, they think cessation. So that the aim of the meditation is that you don't feel. You have no contact, no feeling, nothing. No consciousness, nothing. Personally, I'm sorry to say, I think, what's the point? But anyway, they think it's a great thing. So... I would say I will uh, agree to disagree with them on that point. So personally, I don't think it's a question of having no contact or having no feeling, but the difference with an habitual reaction to a creative response. And I think that's what appropriate action is about, is a creative response upon contact and feeling in terms of internal condition and outside condition. So then now I would like to explore a little these feeling tones that you might have found or not found today. I don't know. I must say it took me a long time to do this practice of being aware of feeling tones because actually what I did was that I, I put my focus on the feeling tone of the awareness of the contact. So instead of being aware of the sensation of the air coming in and out and what is the feeling tone of that, I put the focus on the awareness of the breath. And, the feeling, and that too has a feeling tone. But generally the feeling tone of the awareness is neutral. And so I would spend my time trying to find something that did not seem to be there because it was relatively neutral. I have to point out that Stephen doesn't believe in neutral feelings, but I am a great fan of <laughs> neutral feelings. So, so just this is to, to show that. But over time I understood, and now I can see, you know, I can, there is in a way a different level. Everything gives a feeling tone to us. Every contact, that it be a contact of awareness, a contact of sound, whatever, as a feeling tone. And so pleasant feeling tone, what do we do? When we experience a pleasant feeling tone, let it be 
a material pleasant feeling tone, a spiritual pleasant feeling tone, a philosophical pleasant feeling tone. We can have pleasant feeling tone in contact with many different things, internal, external. Generally, we want more. We want it to continue. We want it to repeat itself. I mean, it's like you have a nice meal. You want to go back to the same place. You want to have the same meal. Uh, before I came on this retreat, I, I bought a little bag of cherries, English cherries. And I, I, yesterday I finished them. I gave the last two to Stephen. I felt very saintly. <laughs> and as soon as you know, I put the two cherries for him on the table, we had it, eaten them together before, the thought immediately arose, I should have bought two bags. <laughs> and then I thought, no need. I bought one bag, I enjoyed it, now it's finished. But it's interesting, generally we want more. This is a thing with pleasant feeling. We want them to continue, we want to repeat them, we want more of them. And then what we have to see, that also what we do with pleasant is sometimes we grasp at the image of what would be pleasant. And I think that's kind of, like that you grasp at something that is pleasant, I think it's fair enough. But that you grasp at the image at something that doesn't exist, but would be so pleasant if it existed, then that is problematic. Because then you compare it to right now which is not pleasant because if it was like that, it would be so pleasant. And often we do this with meditation. So you're about 55 of you, and I would think that a lot of the time we have 110 meditators here. We have the real one, and next to that one there is the ideal one. And the ideal one has no thought no pain, and he's floating a little above. <laughs> and then compared to that one, the real one is, doesn't come up to scratch. And then you feel, this is not working. But there is no ideal meditator. They're just the one who is sitting here. There is just the one who is trying the best he or she can. And so to be careful when we do this, when we grasp at something that could be pleasant that is not here, and then use that to compare it to what is going on. It doesn't mean you cannot hope, of course, for things and work for them, but notice in a way, the, the, the pain that it can bring, the frustration that can bring. Then you have, in a way, what I would call the comparing mind. If only... If only mind, if only she taught better, I could meditate better. If only it did not rain, I could really walk. If only. And that if only again, that comparing mind is again not making us appreciate what is there. Back to that contentment. How can we appreciate what we have instead of in a way looking for something else. I'm not saying we should not transform things, but I think a lot of the time we away from here, which then takes us away from what is pleasant, 
right here, right now. What can I enjoy? And so I would say the awareness is to know fully what is pleasant now. I think this is, the Buddha did not say you must not have pleasant feeling. He said be aware of pleasant feeling. And I think it's very important to be aware of pleasant feeling when you have them. But without grasping at them, but really appreciating, ah, now I am fine. Now I am peaceful. Now I am joyful. Now I am compassionate, or whatever it might be, to really know it. And at the time, knowing this is not going to last. At some point, it will change into something else. Then you have unpleasant feeling. Unpleasant feeling tone. And as soon as you have unpleasant feeling tone, we don't want it, we push it away, we reject it. And the problem with that is by pushing it away, we give it more power. We give it more energy. In a way, we magnify it. It will overwhelm us. Like the guy we keep in our head that gave us the trouble in the office. It just, we, we amplify. The more we don't want something, the more we amplify it. And so, in a way, this meditation with the unpleasant feeling is to talk, how can I be with unpleasant feeling? How can I see how it feels? How they come, how they go? What is it I can do to help myself within it? And to be careful of this, I cannot stand it. When you say that, I cannot stand it. You cannot stand it another second. And it really increases, in a way, the unpleasant feeling. So you need to be careful with that. And also, it works the same way. Often we have what I would call negative anticipation. So right now, you're okay, neutral feeling, pleasant feeling. But what if this terrible thing happened? then truly it would be very nasty. And so you frighten yourself of future unpleasant feeling which you don't have right now. And I think we do a lot of that. And again, to see that we're kind of pushing away something that doesn't exist. But by pushing it away in abstraction, we give it more power. This is a problem. We give it more power. And so in a way to see that any unpleasant feeling is impermanent, is conditioned. And so to try to kind of see a little more, how can I creatively engage with them? What is a trigger? What is a contributing factor? How can I be with this feeling? Once I was teaching in Sweden, and I had a sciatica at the time, and I was teaching Zen style. So we sat 30 minutes, then we walked 10 minutes, and again sat 30 minutes. So we do the walking, and then I sit, and I have to do the, the bell. And I sit, and I have this pain, but it was amazing. It was so painful. It was hot. It was throbbing. It was so painful. But I had to stay there 30 minutes. I was the one ringing the bell. I could not leave them. And so I had two, two choices. 
easier to say, this is unpleasant, this is awful, this is terrible, how am I going to stand this for 30 minutes? And then the 30 minutes seeming to be like a year or thousand years. And instead of that, I used the creative awareness. And I went inside the sensation. And it was this kind of explosion, burning, shifting. But by doing that, being so focused on it, actually... It was painful, but it was fine. And the time passed really fast because I was so focused and not thinking of anything else. But focused in a way I did not exaggerate. I did not proliferate. And then at the end of the sitting, I rang the bell and I went to take some painkiller and that it would pass. (laughs) It doesn't mean, I think we have to be careful. Being aware of unpleasant feeling doesn't mean we don't do anything and we just sit there unpleasant unpleasant. No, we we do something if we can. And in a book which I would recommend if you have physical pain, which is a book by Darlene Cohen, a Zen teacher in America, and the book is called Finding the Joy in the Heart of Pain. So now it has a different title, but still the same author. And she, she suddenly had, 40 years old, rheumatoid arthritis, And then she became very uh, disabled and in great pain. And she described sometimes being so incapacitated that she could not move. And then she would just sit on the bed. But then she would meditate. And then she would try to be aware of every single thing in that room, inside and outside. And she said she would discover a world, the world of light, the world of sound, the world of shapes that she had never seen before in that room. And she said she would have kind of, in a way, amazing experience doing that exercise. And so I think, of course, we don't wish to have unpleasant experience, but I think the meditative awareness can really help us to be differently, to have a creative response to unpleasant feeling. Then, you have the neutral feeling. I am a fan. Even if Stephen thinks they don't exist. And often, what we do with neutral feeling is that we think they're boring. So generally, what we do, we have a neutral feeling, it's boring, and then it becomes unpleasant. That quickly, that's what happens. And often, we're more afraid, I would say, of neutral feeling than unpleasant feeling. That, you know, no, and what is neutral feeling? I would say is nothing is happening. And I would say this is most of the meditation. And I would say what you have the opportunity to do when you meditate, instead of being bored to tears, which sometimes you might feel it is so, <laughs> just to be with neutral feeling, just to experience it. And actually, they are very restful. Nothing good is happening, but nothing bad is happening. So we can just rest. And there is this interesting passage actually said by a nun, a Buddhist nun at the time of the Buddha, and which, because it was appropriate, it was recorded in the Sutta. And the nun says, as long 
as a pleasant feeling is pleasant, pleasant feeling, as long as a pleasant feeling continues, it is pleasant. When it stops, stops, it becomes unpleasant. As long as an unpleasant feeling continues, it is unpleasant. When the unpleasant feeling stops, it becomes pleasant. And often we experience this. You know, you have, a, you have a pain in your stomach for maybe two, three weeks, and then it stops, and you're so conscious that your stomach is fine. Oh, it's fine. Oh, it's great. And then after a week, you forget that your stomach is fine. And because the pain stops, and then it's pleasant not to have the pain. But the last one is interesting. If one un- does not understand neutral feelings, it is unpleasant. If one understands neutral feeling, it is pleasant. And I think actually neutral feeling is a little the base for equanimity. And so to me what we learn by through meditation process to be more in tune with neutral feeling is that it makes us more aware of what I would call the baseline. You see, I think we have all, it seems to me, an imaginary baseline of feeling tone. And the society, too, kind of impress on us that there is a certain baseline. And I would say, generally, what we encourage to have is a baseline of pleasant feeling 5.5 on 10. So anything under 5.5 becomes unpleasant. It's quite a lot. But if the baseline is neutral, we go up and we go down. And to me, this is why it's so important to be more aware of a neutral, to just see this is a baseline, not this mythical, pleasant feeling which should be there most of the time. Now, I would say most of the time, it's relatively neutral. Then we go up, then we go down. Then I wanted to say just a few words about feeling sensation, emotional sensation, because I just said very few words this morning as an aside that this was also more like a modern take, a little my take on this meditation. And I find it's an interesting meditation to do time to time, not when you have intense feeling or emotion, because then it makes too much intensity. But time to time, especially in meditation, when it's a little uh, less intense, to be aware, how do I feel my feelings, emotional feeling in the body? And often we feel it in the heart, in the solar plexus, in the belly, Someone was telling me he used to feel them in his neck, but whatever the place. And to go to the place and try to be with the feeling sensation differently. Because generally we have an immediate reaction. I have a feeling sensation, straight away I give it a name, then I give it a meaning, then I tie it up with some story in the past and in the future. And actually, I go away very far from the feeling itself. How does it feel, what I am feeling right now, instead of going into the abstraction of it? 
And what you might have experienced here, if you looked a little at it, is that I presume for most of you, there was nothing. And then you might have worried, I don't have any feelings. I must have feelings. This is one of the credo of our psychological society. We must have strong feelings. But to me, what it revealed to me, this meditation, is most of the time we have a pretty neutral emotional sensation. Not much is going on. Not because we are unfeeling, but because not much is happening. If something happens, yes, we get, you know, we love somebody, then we feel something. We hate somebody, we feel something. But a lot of the time, it's fairly restful. And we can just rest in that. And so in a way, to see how can I be with this emotion in a different way. So that, again, it's not that we don't have emotion. But we try to see when it's intense, maybe not to focus so much on it. When it's habitual to see where do I go? What kind of feeling do I have? And then when it's light, again, how does it feel? And in a way to to be more in tune with the texture of our emotions in the body. So that over time, we, we see feeling arising, know that they're conditioned, and have a creative response, and see that we have feelings, they don't have us. We are not them. Then I wanted to say a few words about patterns. (coughs) Emotional patterns. And I think this... You know, I talk a little about mental patterns, and I think there is physical patterns, relationship patterns, but just today looking a little at emotional patterns. And again, to see that the meditation can help us to see again the different level. We don't feel strongly all the time. We can have light, emotional, habitual, or intense. And I think, for example, if we take fear, I think it's very important to see that emotions are functions of the human being. And when we're doing meditation, we're not trying to stop having emotions. But we try not to be caught and overwhelmed. And I would say destabilized, which would lead then to inappropriate action by our emotions. And so, for example, if we take fear, fear is a survival mechanism. Fear is just telling us, be careful. I mean, this is kind of evolution has developed this very good uh, emotion. It's intense. We're paralyzed. This is kind of fight or flight or paralyzed. We're afraid. And I remember many, many, many years ago, in the very early day, of my uh, teaching career, we could say. We were in America, and Jack Cornfield, who is a very famous teacher, and has, when he gives talks, he has 400 people and very big crowd. And so he offered Stephen and myself to say a few things about our forthcoming retreat. So it was very kind of him, you know, to a little publicity. 
And uh, so I uh, was going to start to say something. And suddenly I froze. I could not utter a word. And I could not utter a word because there was this intense fear. And the fear was saying, 400 people, how can you speak in front of 400 people? You have never done it. And I could not speak. So much so that Stephen had to take over and he kind of, you know, took care of it. And after, I really felt bad because I thought, I did not represent women well. I am a feminist. How could I let the side down? <laughs> and then I thought, but what's the matter with 400 people? I mean, they're just people. If you say something stupid, you say something stupid. So be it. You're not going to die of it. And from that moment on, I decided I would not be afraid when I did public speaking. And what was funny is that just two weeks later, back in uh, England at the time, somebody said, oh, somebody kind of broke a leg. Can you replace her? And there is going to be about 2,000 people you have to speak to. And I said, of course I'll do it. <laughs> so I went, and I did it. And then at the end of it, I said to my friend, you know, I have never spoken in front of 2,000 people. And then he had two emotions. The first one was, ah, it could have been awful. And the next one, ah, it was okay. <laughs> and so in a way to see, yes, fear. But you see, we feel fear because we're afraid of something. And I think tomorrow, the practice tomorrow might help us to ask, is there something really to be frightened of? Because, of course, there is a physiological response. But the meditation, again, can help us with stability and openness and see, why can I do this? How can I be with this situation? <clears throat> then you have habitual. And habitual, this is something I can really experience when I go to South Africa. You go to South Africa and oh, you're like this a lot of the time. You read the papers, people talk to you about people being stabbed, robbed. I mean, it's kind of lots of people have bad experiences there, especially the people living there. And so what is interesting is you really see that if you with somebody who is afraid, you become afraid too. And to see fear is contagious. And that's why I thought, do I want to be contagious? Do I want to give my fear to somebody else? That's the first question. And the second one is to see that if you are with somebody who is not afraid, you're not afraid either. So in a way to see what do we want to give to other in terms of fear, in terms of this habitual fear. And then we met this young woman who used to be very afraid, very afraid. She, she was living in Johannesburg, and she would not leave her house. She was so afraid until she did meditation. And she did just focusing on the breath. And within two months, her fear had gone down. And then the only thing she had to do, 
is to do meditation on the breath for 10 minutes if she had to go out. Then the fear would go down and then she would go out. And then she would be careful, of course. And then she would come back and so far she has not had any trouble. I also have never had any trouble. Then you have fear when it's light. And fear when it's light, it's interesting the physiological effect it has. And then how it can make us spin so that we quickly go into intense fear. And a good example is a near accident. You have a crossroad, you're going this way, you're so used to go this way, so you just drive generally relatively fast, and suddenly a car comes, and you just avoid it by an inch. And on the moment, you're not afraid. You just do whatever is needed. And after you, <gasps> I nearly had an accident. <gasps> this could have happened. The car could have been totaled. I could have gone in a hospital. And then you can build it up, build it up, build it up. And make you really intense fear for like quite a few hours. Or you can really be with the fear. <gasps> How does it feel? And not do anything with it. Not grasp at it, not proliferate, exaggerate, just how does it feel? <gasps> I survived. I am still alive. I am not dead yet. But I will be more careful at this crossroad in the future. <laughs> and then slowly what we can see, it just go down. If we don't feed it, it just go down and just become just this kind of light function. So in a way, with the meditative awareness, with the practice to see, trying to be aware of the feeling tone, trying to be aware of the feeling sensation, trying to be aware of our emotional patterns, and also to see their impact on appropriate action and how they can, that can really help us toward this cultivation of appropriate action. That's what I want to say today. Are there any questions or comments? Yes? You see, I, I think what is important to see, what I'm trying to show is that actually emotions are physiological things. They're not floating about here. Emotions are physiological. And so, yes, if there has been a trauma in the past, I think often two things happen. One is that if something has happened which was painful, hurtful, or whatever, sometimes what you have is what, I, what we call in French a cat. A cat who has been scalded by hot water, fear, cold water. That actually the, the, the instances 
get kind of magnified to everything, even what is not dangerous. So I think this is kind of also to, to try to become aware of that at that level. What is not dangerous? That's one thing. But when I think it's a trauma, I think it's much harder. It's much harder because it's kind of like you're totally relatively fine. And then it might just be a movement. It might just be a sound. It might just be uh, an image. And it takes you back there. And it's kind of like you are there. And so I think is actually, of course, there is, um, I would always recommend, you know, to do their trauma therapy and things which can help. But I think in terms of the meditation is to try to see that it comes generally upon contact. It doesn't come all the time, but there is certain trigger. Also, if you are tired, stressed, it might more be trigger point. And also to try to see how can I be stable and open so that the thing happen, because it will happen time to time, but I know that it's not going to last. It's going to pass at some point. And also to see what is it that helped me so that it passed possibly more easily. Is there anything I can do? Do I need to lie down? Do I need to be with somebody? Do I need to... I think it's important to see that it's a multiple condition. So I would look at the internal condition, the out external condition, to see how can I help myself? But also accepting that at time it will come. I think because if you don't want it to come ever, I think this is very difficult because it takes a lot of time for the, the power, the energy of the shock in the whole physiological system to go. I think it's a little like uh, a death. Like if somebody very, very dear to you dies, it's a shock to the system. And I would say generally for a year and a half, you're going to cry at the oddest of time. The oddest of time you will cry. And it will last generally a year, a year and a half. And then it will pass. But I think we need to accept that for a year and a year and a half, we will be sensitive in that way because of that loss, because of that shock. So I think it's part acceptance, part being with, and part helping ourselves. We're trying to find certain positive conditions which can help us to with it. But yes, I would not say with the mind, with just rationally, I would not say no. Just to tell yourself, I am okay, I am okay. You're not okay. You're feeling these things. It's kind of, you know, it's unpleasant. It's intense. Yes, indeed. Yes? I would say if it's not there in the meditation, I will not bring something which is not there. That's the first thing. If 
at some point in your life on the cushion or outside, you have a jealous feeling or an angry feeling. I think it depends on how you feel within your condition. Because you see, when I had that pain, I was on a meditation retreat and I would say I had a fairly, fairly good, uh, even though I was in pain, I had a fairly good, what I would call power of concentration and power of inquiry. So actually I did it with the power of meditation. So I think if you don't have the power of meditation, if you go into it, it will become more intense. And then it's better to have the focus somewhere else. And I think it's the same with intense feeling. If you have the power of meditation and inquiry, what I call the power of creative awareness at that moment, to go into it, yes, can transform it. But if you don't have the power at that moment because you are tired, you are ill, or you are stressed, then I would generally not focus. I would just kind of be aware of it, but focus on something a bit wider, a bit more spacious. And when the intensity has a bit gone down, then I might kind of look at what is a story, what is a condition, what is a feeling. So I think it really depends on the internal and external conditions. Yes? I'm uh, quite interested in the idea of why um, you tend to intensify fear. There doesn't appear to be any good reason to do it, you know, especially anticipating something that you know is going to happen, that you anticipate it's going to be unpleasant, and then you kind of build this whole fear about it. Um, what have you come to I think it can be different things. It can be uh, magic to think if I think about something negative ahead, it's not going to happen. There is this kind of magic, magical thinking sometimes. Also, I think sometimes is being too much into just, it's not so much the fear, it's anticipation. Sometimes we have to, the tendency to be too much ahead of ourselves. I think this is a fairly common pattern. So by being too... And then it can stick to any fear or whatever it might be. So I think it's kind of to see, you know, what are the conditions around it? Do I have a tendency to do what I call forecasting, being ahead of myself? Or is it more like magical thinking? If I think of bad things, they won't happen. Or is it something else? I think it's kind of to, to see, to see and to see, ah, I am forecasting. Then just, okay, right now. I am okay. So also to see how does it work. I think forecasting can be something I would probably do a lot. Just yeah. trying to jump ahead to something mm-hmm. over there, which I don't really need to. Yeah, so it's kind of just saying, ah, forecasting. Do I need to do it now? Maybe not. So it's kind of like just seeing. It's really just seeing that we do it. And generally by just seeing, the intensity of it goes down a bit. And it's less often. It still will be there, but less often. Uh, yes? Uh, it may seem a naive question, but I've been wondering, since everybody seems to be um, in a consensus promoting awareness of the here and now as a, a way to be more lucid, more in control, I was wondering, in some extreme conditions in life, like, let's say, a prison, a camp, Really something really horrible. How does this awareness of the here and now 
Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. I mean, sure, sure, sure. Uh, well, I have, to, I have two examples very quickly. One is people working in jail in South Africa. And uh, we go regularly there and we go and give talks to the prisoner. And it's very interesting to go talking to them and how the meditation really helped them. Really helped them to be with themselves in such a different way. That if, you see, I think it's very important to see the meditation is not just about being here and now. It's being here and now with stability and openness, quietness and clarity. So it's not the here and now which is the most important, is a quietness and clarity. And so often what happens with the people in jail, often also are addicts. They do the meditation and they say, I never knew I could experience a feeling of peace. I never knew I could have compassionate intention toward other. So they experience themselves in the moment differently. Another example very fast is of this young man called Noah Levine, which now is uh, is teaching meditation. And he used to be alcohol, drug addict, stealing, beating people up, everything. Although his father uh, is one of the great uh, spiritual teachers in America. But that's another story. So this young man, age 17 and a bit, ends up finally in juvenile uh, prison. And he's really at the end of the tether. He's tried to kill himself by... Uh, cutting himself with a comb, but that doesn't work. It's not very efficacious. So they put him in a confinement, and he's really, really desperate. And then he phoned his father. He just has one phone call. And he phoned his father, who is his great spiritual teacher. And he said, Dad, what can I do? And Dad says, just watch the breath. And you might think, but come on, the poor kid, he's totally kind of messed up. And there is nothing else to do because he's in kind of like confinement all on his own. He has nothing else to do. So finally, he just do breath meditation and he feels much better. Then he also does a 12 step and now he's teaching meditation. So I think it's very important to see it's not just about being here and now. It's being here and now in a different way because if I go back to the first day, the concentration helps us to be more calm and spacious. The inquiry helps us to be more quiet and clear. And that helps us to develop what I call creative awareness, which helps us to be more in the present, but the present is not sacred. The present does not exist. The present is moving all the time. Past, present, future. It's, we're not looking for sacred present. That's not, that's not what is the most important thing. The most important is the quietness, is the clarity. That's what makes a difference. And I have to stop here so you can walk a little before the final sit.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.